Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of arson. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. As the sun dipped low over the horizon, a pair of Virginia state troopers settled in for another long night. For the past two weeks, they'd been hunting the serial arsonist who was terrorizing Accomack County. And so far, the search had been completely uneventful. Each night, investigators squeezed into a cramped hunter's tent at dusk and stared out at a barren country road for hours. Thankfully, tonight was their last shift. As usual, the hours dragged on and on. The troopers felt their focus slipping and struggled to keep each other awake. Then, in the final hours of their watch, it happened. Just before midnight, a van approached the structure they were guarding. They watched as a shadowy figure leapt from the passenger side door and ran toward the building while the van disappeared down the road. The troopers tensed up, waiting for the perfect moment to emerge. At the first signs of a spark, the officers burst out of their tent and yelled for the arsonist to freeze. But the suspect took off running instead. By the time the investigators reached the road, the mysterious van had returned and their target was nowhere in sight. All they could do was watch as the van's taillights disappeared into the night. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we got to know Charlie Smith and Tanya Bundick. In the beginning, their relationship was passionate and exciting, but when life started to smother their romance, they found a dangerous way to heat things up. This week, will follow Charlie and Tanya as they set out to destroy more than just property in Accomack County, Virginia. Their crimes would leave the future of their hometown hanging in the balance. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Until next time, sweet screams. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. On November 12, 2012, Charlie Smith and Tanya Bundick went out for their nightly drive together. Charlie watched from the passenger seat as miles of forgotten fields blurred by. After a few hours, the calm scene took a turn. Tanya had an unusual request. According to Charlie, she pulled over next to one of the many abandoned buildings that dotted Accomack County. She wanted him to burn it down. Charlie's relationship with Tanya had been rocky for months by that point. Between their money troubles and her eldest son's behavioral issues, they had more than their fair share of worries. And then there were his performance issues in the bedroom. It was Charlie's greatest shame. He felt like a complete and utter failure as a man. He was desperate to make it up to Tanya and told her so nonstop. It seemed this was his chance but Charlie couldn't be totally sure. After all, Tanya had a wicked sense of humor. She was always joking around and pranking him. Charlie gave it some thought and decided this must be another one of her tricks. Not wanting to be a bad sport, he got out of the car and walked over to the house. As he found his way inside, Tanya drove off. Charlie peered inside the empty structure, biding his time. The place was so quiet that Charlie almost jumped out of his skin when his phone went off in his pocket. Tanya wanted to know if he'd done it. He said yes, and she came around to pick him up away from the abandoned building. Back in the car, Tanya was her old self, the happy-go-lucky woman he'd fallen in love with over a year ago. The worries that plagued them only moments earlier were nowhere to be found. Tanya laughed and smiled like Charlie hadn't seen her do in a long time. He was shocked that it only took a little make-believe to cause such a reversal, but he wasn't about to question it. A deep sense of relief washed over him. Maybe they were going to be all right after all. Unfortunately, the feeling was short-lived. The couple drove a while longer as the sun settled over the barren landscape. The sky was still pitch black and Tanya wanted to go back and see their handiwork. Charlie tensed. This wasn't what he had in mind. When they passed the house, it looked exactly the same. Tanya peered at Charlie, a question forming on her lips. He made excuses before finally admitting he hadn't actually done the deed. He braced for anger, or worse, disappointment. Instead, Tanya simply let out a playful sigh and said she shouldn't have sent a man to do a woman's job. She circled back around and pulled over. This time, Tanya jumped out of the car and snuck into the broken down structure herself. Charlie fidgeted as he waited for her. She was gone for so long, he started to worry something had gone horribly wrong. 
Then finally, she emerged, a wicked grin on her face. Behind her, smoke was already seeping through the broken windows. Charlie's stomach churned. He might have hoped this was simply a random, wild night. Even so, her behavior should have raised some red flags. Before we delve into some psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. The term pyromaniac tends to get thrown around in pop culture pretty casually, but true pyromania is an impulse control disorder found in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM. People with this disorder experience intense mood swings before and after setting a fire and tend to feel a sense of gratification from the act. Although Tanya was never officially diagnosed with pyromania, her actions and demeanor fit with some symptoms of the disorder. However, these warning signs went unheeded and Accomack County firefighters were left to deal with the fallout. At around 10.41 p.m., a woman who lived across from Charlie and Tanya's target contacted 911. Trucks and water tankers arrived shortly afterward, including some from the Tasley station where Charlie used to volunteer. By the time they reached the building, the entire structure was engulfed in flames. Once upon a time, a single unit might have dispatched up to 30 people, but those numbers had been steadily dropping for years. That night, just a dozen or so firefighters attempted to wrangle the blaze on their own. Adding to the list of complications, the county was too small and spread out to justify municipal water systems. That meant firefighters couldn't count on a nearby water supply. They had to bring as much H2O as possible and hope for the best. Their main priority was stopping the blaze from reaching the small collection of homes across the field, but things didn't start out promising. Within 15 minutes, the first water tanker ran dry. Not long afterward, they fully emptied a second. Then, another problem emerged. In addition to water, breathable air is a vital and limited resource at the scene of a fire. To supplement the lack of air, every firefighter wore a small portable oxygen tank on their back. 30 minutes into the fight, those tanks were running dangerously low. Thick black smoke blanketed the area, and more poured out of the building in a steady stream. If they couldn't get things under control soon, they'd have to pray dispatch could find some backup. But the firefighters were used to being the underdogs. They kept up their surround and drown strategy. Around the 45 minute mark, the tides finally turned in their favor. Before long, watery mist took over the smoke clouds. The fire was dying. By the time the embers blinked out and the engines headed back to the station, it was nearly one in the morning. Worn out, the firemen packed up and prepared to go home, but they couldn't relax and enjoy a job well done just yet. It turned out there was more work to do. Just a half hour after leaving the scene, dispatch received word of a second fire. News of a third came 10 minutes later. It wasn't unheard of to get multiple calls in one night. Between cooking fires and car accidents, Accomac's engine men had seen their fair share of busy shifts. Something about these reports didn't sit right with the more experienced volunteers, though. The county spanned 70 miles. 
yet these fires had been clustered near each other. Not to mention, all the targets were abandoned homes. Before tonight, they might have lost one or two in the course of a full year. To have three burned down in a single evening put people on edge. Suspicion spread among the ranks. And on the night of November 13th, it seemed like their worries were confirmed. Starting around 10 p.m., emergency services received calls about three more fires in the span of just three hours. Just like before, the marks were all abandoned buildings in approximately the same area. The station chiefs had enough experience to know that six fires in 48 hours was more than a coincidence. Whoever did this worked with intention, leaving behind no witnesses or usable evidence. It was time to face the facts. There was an arsonist in Accomack County. Sheriff Todd Godwin woke up on November 14th to news of even more fires. His instincts screamed that this was just the beginning. Unfortunately for him, the county's fire investigator retired in 2007 and was never replaced. That meant Godwin would be working with the Virginia State Police. In order to hit the ground running, he requested an inventory of every abandoned structure in the area. It took a couple of days to reach his desk, and with just one glance, he could see why. The document was pages long and contained some 700 addresses. Even with outside help, there was no way his team had the manpower to cover every potential target. Godwin worked with the state investigators to narrow down the list based on similarities among the previous targets. Each stood vacant for some time and was easy to access from the road. With that in mind, they chose five structures that were likely to be targeted next and sent officers to stake them out. As the days passed, the fires continued, but the arsonists didn't choose a single one of their sites. Although things might have seemed hopeless, it wasn't all a bust. On November 21st, Tanya and Charlie set out for their regular evening adventure. By then, they'd realized Charlie didn't have the stomach to do the setting, so he drove instead. The couple had already set about a dozen fires, maybe more, and had worked out a system. Charlie dropped Tanya off and drove away so there'd be no reports of a loitering vehicle. She wasted no time, sprinting directly into the dark toward her target. Between abandoned furniture and pockets of dry weeds poking through the floor, there was plenty of kindling to choose from. When the sparks caught, Tanya called Charlie to come get her. It was almost too easy, just in and out. And for Tanya, it felt amazing, like loosening a pressure valve buried deep within. But that night, something cut her thrill short. There were headlights coming her way, and they weren't Charlie's. Tanya leapt for cover as the beacons combed the scene and tried to still her shaky breath. When the lights disappeared, she peeked out from her hiding spot. Soon enough, Charlie pulled up. Tanya ran at him full tilt and hopped in. Before she could close the door behind her, she yelled for him to go, go, go. Coming up, fear and paranoia rage across Accomack County. Hi. 
Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the ParCast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem. This podcast has it all. From the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Charlie Smith and Tanya Bundick had been setting fires across Accomack County, Virginia for a little over a week. So far, they hadn't come close to getting caught. But on November 21st, 2012, it seemed their luck had run out. As they sped away from their latest conquest, Tanya kept her eyes glued to the back window. Charlie had no idea what she was doing. But after a few miles, she turned forward and slumped in her seat, relieved. She took a few deep breaths and told him about the cop car. She'd come dangerously close to being discovered, but it seemed they were in the clear. No one had followed them. At that moment, Charlie finally registered that they were actually committing crimes. He didn't care about himself, but the thought of Tanya being sent to prison made him sick. She was all the family he had left in the world. He couldn't lose her. It's possible this was the first time Charlie asked her to stop, but Tanya almost certainly said no. According to Charlie, she couldn't stop even if she wanted to. She needed the release the fires gave her. Charlie couldn't understand the appeal, but he knew one thing. It was too risky for her to keep at it, considering her boys and all. To protect Tanya, he decided that he set the fires from then on out no matter how much it upset him. It didn't seem to occur to Charlie that he had just as much at stake, including a child of his own, but he always put his family before himself and Tanya was no exception. Psychologists call this type of behavior chronic self-sacrificing. Over time, Charlie likely came to believe that he truly mattered less than those around him. And Tanya didn't fight him on it. She didn't need to be the one holding the lighter to feel the thrill. Simply having a hand in the destruction was enough. She was free while Charlie acted on her worst impulses, knowing he would take the fall if anything went awry. As fall morphed into winter, Charlie and Tanya kept up appearances like they always had to the outside world. But around them, life had changed. Friends and family never would have guessed they had something to do with it. 
Stories about the fires and the ongoing investigation dominated local news coverage. Pretty soon, it was all anyone could talk about in person and online. There were entire Facebook pages dedicated to the attacks. The two most popular were Who's Trying to Burn Down Akamak and ESVA Fires. Hundreds of people posted almost daily, sharing everything from their fears to favorite theories. Even Tanya joined in on the discussions. Considering how prevalent the topic was, it might have been more suspicious if she hadn't. In the midst of all the gossip, most folks agreed that the person responsible must be local. Few suspected there could be more than one perpetrator. They figured the culprit was someone who knew they'd pretty much never run out of broken down buildings as targets. And there was simply no reason an out-of-towner would target a place like Akamak. But that did little to calm the public's nerves. All it meant was the arsonist could be anyone. Neighbors, friends, and even family started eyeing each other with suspicion. Akamak used to be the kind of place where doors stayed unlocked and kids played in the streets. Slowly but surely, it became one where security floodlights shone through the night and parents shooed their children home early. Ironically, despite the widespread fear, the area became the safest it had been in a long time. Because of increased patrols, the overall crime rate fell drastically. The sheriff's office established checkpoints along the three major roads. They didn't do much to help the investigation, but they did significantly decrease instances of drunk driving. Those whose daily routines changed the most were the volunteers at the fire stations up and down the coast. After weeks of being summoned almost nightly, the Tasley crew, including Charlie's half-brother, decided it would be easier to just camp out there. It's hard to imagine they didn't do their fair share of speculating too. Some members had been around six years ago when a string of fires just like these tore through the county. That arsonist turned out to be a former firefighter. So the truth was they couldn't discount anyone, not even their own. They spent their days tending to their equipment, cleaning and repacking hoses. Since they could expect multiple calls, many found it easier to stay awake rather than try to sleep for a few unsettled hours. As the situation approached the one month mark, the firefighters were practically burned out. Then on December 15th, the arsonists changed their pattern. Around three in the morning, the Parksley Fire Department got called to a neighborhood just north of the station. The detached garage of a lived-in home not an abandoned one, was burning. Neighbors gathered to take in the terrible scene. Charlie and Tanya, who lived right next door, were among the onlookers. All the homeowner could do was stare along with the rest of the crowd. She'd just put up a few decorations for Christmas, but the rest were somewhere among the flames, along with her son's expensive band equipment. At least the person responsible had spared her chickens, they'd been released from their coop before the blaze. It was the 30th fire in the series and it marked a scary turning point. Many citizens had feared it was only a matter of time before the firebug targeted actual occupied homes. They wondered if this was the escalation they'd been dreading. And if so, would they be next? The anxious atmosphere put a real damper on the festive spirit 
Few people expected the arsonist to take a break during the holidays, and they were partly right. On Christmas Eve, a large commercial garage went up in flames. The fire reached a propane tank inside, setting off a terrifying explosion. It proved to be one of the more challenging infernos to date and left firefighters battling their own exhaustion along with the fire. Still, Sheriff Godwin gave his deputies the next night off, but even though it was Christmas, he couldn't let the night go entirely unwatched. So he went out on patrol with a special agent from the Virginia State Police. At some point, the two men stopped to grab coffee at a local gas station. Looking around, Godwin was surprised to see two familiar faces, Charlie and Tanya. They were practically the only other people there. Godwin and the agent took their coffees and sat at a table nearest the couple. Godwin had known Charlie for the better part of 20 years, though they usually didn't meet on the best of terms. Between the hard times though, he knew Charlie to be a good guy. If the pair were unsettled by a visit from the sheriff, they didn't show it. They made the usual small talk for a bit and like most conversations at the time, the topic eventually turned to the fires. Charlie asked about them, commenting that the officers must be busy. Godwin and his companion couldn't hide the bone deep weariness that had settled in. Busy didn't begin to cover it, but the worst part was feeling like they were going in circles, chasing their own tails. What they needed more than anything was a break. Unbeknownst to him, he was pleading with the only people who could grant him his wish. Maybe Charlie and Tanya felt some genuine sympathy, or perhaps they'd never intended to set a fire on Christmas at all. Either way, the holiday passed without so much as a hint of smoke in the air. Come the new year though, things were back to business as usual. January and February of 2013 were just as terrifying as the months before. Investigators were getting desperate and offered a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arsonist's arrest. So far, it had gone unclaimed. Then, that Valentine's Day, a call came in that was unlike the rest. A Mr. J.D. Shreves reported that someone had tried to burn down his house. It wasn't the usual abandoned building or even a detached garage. If the culprit was indeed the arsonist, it marked a hard departure from their MO and the realization of the public's worst fears. Investigators hurried to the scene, hoping it would hold the answers they'd been searching for. Instead, they only found more questions. Earlier that evening, JD had taken his daughters to visit their grandma. When he got home around 20 minutes later, something felt off. He thought he smelled smoke, but it was hard to tell. It was faint and he couldn't figure out where it came from, so he shrugged it off. It wasn't until a couple hours later that his daughters came back and smelled the same thing. JD went to check the outside of the house. In the backyard, under a piece of siding that looked like it had been pried loose, he found a slowly burning rag. We don't know for sure how this event figured into the police investigation, but it doesn't seem the authorities made much of it. Although the fire hadn't caught, there wasn't much physical evidence to help nail down a suspect. The thing was, 
the evidence they should have been looking for wasn't physical at all. They should have known that burning someone's house down is highly personal. J.D. Shreves just so happened to be Tanya's ex-boyfriend, and in her eyes, the relationship hadn't ended well. Unfortunately, authorities didn't learn this information until after the fact. Local and state police had sunk so much time, manpower, and taxpayer dollars into the investigation, and yet it still felt like they were going nowhere. For all they knew, the fires would continue until they engulfed the entire county in flames. Coming up, the fires finally go out. Now, back to the story. By February 2013, police had been searching for the Accomack County arsonist for three months, and they didn't have much to show for it. The culprits, Tanya Bundick and Charlie Smith, certainly weren't under suspicion. The only town gossip about them revolved around their lavish wedding plans and how exactly they were going to afford it. Though few actually knew how bad their financial situation really was. Although they did their best to put up a happy front, the couple had resorted to dumpster diving for food more than once. Tanya didn't like to share her troubles, even with friends. Their family situation was just another secret to keep, like their after-dark activities. With all of their schemes, the couple lived an isolated existence, which seemed to hit Charlie particularly hard. Those close to him noticed he appeared sadder and more withdrawn than they'd ever seen him. Ever since he started dating Tanya, though, nobody felt comfortable enough to ask about it. According to psychologist Dr. Jack Schaefer, Charlie's behavior is typical for someone harboring a dark secret. The effort required to keep skeletons in the closet can cause deep emotional distress. To cope, many people self-medicate with drugs or alcohol. Even though Charlie had a history of substance abuse, it seems he managed to hold on to his sobriety. On the other hand, Tanya seemed wholly unbothered by Charlie's emotional state or their double life. Compartmentalizing came more naturally to her and she had no issues maintaining their facade. She insisted they continue going out to dinner and making regular appearances at the Shuckers bar. Then in March of that year, Tanya announced on Facebook that she would shutter her clothing store for a few months to focus on wedding planning. A tiny taste of toot hadn't been a gold mine, but they still missed the income. Just a few weeks later, Charlie joked with a friend about framing someone for the fires to get the $25,000 reward. By the end of the month, the prize was still unclaimed. On the night of April 1st, Tanya and Charlie went out for their usual evening drive, headed south toward a small town called Melfa. Before long, they came upon a promising prospect. They were scoping it out when Tanya noticed they were near the state police barracks. Even with the cover of night and a bit of distance, it was too close for comfort, so they kept moving. Midnight was approaching when they spotted another building on Airport Road. Charlie realized the place was busier than they usually preferred. A few cars surrounded the structure. He tried to warn Tanya. Something in the pit of his stomach told him it was a trap, but she didn't want to hear it. They'd been out long enough and it was time to make a move. 
Charlie figured Tanya knew better than him, so he did his best to push his apprehension aside. After setting over 60 fires, the next few steps ran like clockwork. Tanya dropped Charlie off as close to the building as she could. While she drove off, he ran for cover behind his would-be pyre. If he couldn't find a way inside, he'd stuff a rag under a door or into a window. Then he'd light it and call Tanya on his way back to the road. That night, it all went according to plan, until the sparks took. Suddenly, two men sprung out from the darkness, shouting that they were the police. Charlie had already dialed Tanya and sprinted toward their meetup point. Luckily, there was enough distance between him and the cops. Charlie made it back to the car before they could reach him. Tanya sped off in a flash. They watched the road for any sign of lights and sirens, but saw none. About a mile away, they came to a red light. Trying not to draw even more attention to themselves, Tanya slowed to a stop. When she checked the rearview mirror again, her heart sank. A sheriff's deputy vehicle pulled up right behind them. She and Charlie held their breath, waiting to see what the deputy might do. The light seemed to go on forever, but just as it turned green and Tanya started to inch forward, the sirens blared. Charlie had been mentally preparing for this moment for months. Before the deputy could approach, he jumped out of the van with his hands up. Perhaps he thought if he surrendered, they'd let Tanya go. Instead, they were both arrested and taken in for questioning. Charlie had been on the wrong side of an interrogation table before, and not once had it occurred to him to lie his way out. This time was no different. He hadn't even been Mirandized yet when he started apologizing. Sheriff Todd Godwin had to stop Charlie to read him his rights. With that business finished, the questions began. Charlie answered everyone without hesitation, except when it came to naming his accomplice. Even though Tanya was with him in the car, he refused to answer anything that might implicate her. The police went through each of the fires one by one, and Charlie took responsibility for them all. For those that hadn't been his, he gave a simple no comment. Charlie also explained that he'd never wanted to start the fires in the first place. When Godwin asked him why he did it anyway, he just shook his head. He'd done it for Tanya, but he couldn't and wouldn't tell them that. The interview went on for hours, with Godwin growing more frustrated and confused by the minute. Finally, he told Charlie he needed to tell the whole truth. Otherwise, they couldn't be sure the fires would stop once and for all. It was nearly two in the morning when Charlie finally caved. The fires had been Tanya's idea, and she let every one he hadn't. When he told them about the connection between her and J.D. Shreves, Godwin realized it had been an act of revenge. Charlie even went so far as to confess that he had gone along with it because of his sexual issues in the bedroom. He claimed he was terrified Tanya would leave him because of them. Setting fires was something he could do to make her happy, so he did. Charlie may have given in, but Tanya wouldn't. Sitting in an interrogation room a few miles away, she told police a very different story. According to her, 
She had no idea Charlie was involved in the fires until that very night. Interrogators continued to probe, but she insisted she just couldn't tell them something she didn't know. After many unproductive hours, Tanya ended the interview by asking for a lawyer. She and Charlie were taken to the Accomack County Jail later that morning. Soon, news of their arrest spread around town. As it turned out, the armchair detectives had been correct about a few things. Charlie and Tanya were locals, and they'd been right under everyone's noses the whole time. Friends and family were blindsided, but the Tasley fire crew must have taken the news the hardest. Although Charlie hadn't been with them for over a year by that point, it still hit too close to home. Just like six years ago, their own comrade had been the one to wreak so much destruction. Their disappointment probably made Charlie feel that much worse. But since he had already pleaded guilty, all he could do was wait to be sentenced. Meanwhile, Tanya sat in the county jail, awaiting her trial. It was a small facility made up of a single building. Although men and women were kept separate, inmates found plenty of ways to contact one another, and some were more creative than others. The first time Charlie and Tanya spoke after the arrest, she was out in the recreation yard. Charlie's cell had a window overlooking it, and she got his attention through the bars. They started passing each other notes by burying them near the flagpole in the rec yard. Charlie left Tanya daily love letters. It seemed his only concern was that she remembered his true feelings for her. Tanya's messages contained some of the same sentiments, but she was preoccupied with what he was telling the authorities. She reminded him to tell someone that he'd been on drugs the night he confessed. She needed him to say that she wasn't involved in the arson at all. As Charlie understood it, she must have been worried about her kids. He never held it against her, however, we don't know if he ever followed through on her urgings. By the end of September, Tanya somehow raised enough money to cover her bond and she was released. She continued writing to Charlie and allowed him to call collect once a week. Now that she was out, all she wanted to talk about was getting married. She asked him about rings and vows and told him she was making arrangements with her lawyer to bring a priest to the prison. She was desperate to get it done before her trial date. Of course, they were both aware that spouses couldn't be forced to testify against each other. But the most important thing, to Charlie anyway, was that they were in love. Tanya pulled Charlie in one direction while the prosecution pulled him in another. His confession was the most concrete evidence they had against her. If he refused to testify at her trial, they wouldn't stand a chance. Even Charlie's lawyer tried to get him to think about cooperating. Still, he held firm even when Sheriff Godwin told him there were rumors Tanya had a new boyfriend on the outside. But the next time Godwin visited toward the end of November, he had proof. Charlie's heart broke as he leafed through the pages and pages of photocopied letters from Tanya to some other guy. They were full of romantic, sometimes graphic thoughts and fantasies. Since the sheriff had them in his possession, she must have written them while she was in jail alongside Charlie. With the truth before him in black and white, the last embers of love went cold. 
Although he still cared for Tanya, he decided to put himself first. If he continued to stay silent, he was looking down the barrel of multiple life sentences. Charlie agreed to turn state's witness, and on December 2nd, 2013, Tanya was charged with an additional 61 counts of arson. She never wavered about her innocence, though she did eventually submit an Alford plea. An Alford plea is a version of a guilty plea. It does not require a defendant to admit guilt, but acknowledges that the prosecution potentially has the evidence to convict them at trial. Essentially, it's a way for a defendant to say, I'm innocent, but I know it looks bad. In April 2015, Tanya was sentenced to 17 years and six months in prison for arson and conspiracy to commit arson. Two days later, Charlie was given 15 years for the same. For the rest of Accomack County, it was good riddance. They'd lived in fear for the better part of five months, but now it was over. Life went on, like the steady beat of ocean waves against the Virginia shoreline. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Charlie Smith and Tanya Bundick, we found American Fire, Love, Arson, and Life in a Vanishing Land by Monica Hesse, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Scott Stronick. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum. Edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells. Fact-checked by Haley Milligan. Researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. And produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Thank you.